evolution of te- medical technology and, and the development of more sensitive testing, we're trying. We always stay on top of that, and so we do the. The FDA requires um, a basic male gamete donor panel of infectious diseases, and so clearly we're going to adhere to that. But we also do above and beyond. We have um, a molecular infectious disease testing lab in house in Virginia. So we do some additional DNA-based PCR testing for some of the infectious diseases. Um, And I'd say the thing that really has changed most significantly in the past couple of years has been the genetic carrier screening. Um, Starting in January of this year, we have um, been doing expanded carrier screening on all of our new donors. So these guys are being tested or screened for over 250, I think it's almost 300 diseases, 281, something like that, Um, a large number of genetic conditions for um, recessive diseases so that, you know, we can identify if they have a carrier status, and if they do, we require that the recipient who's interested in purchasing them also have carrier testing to ensure that they're not carriers for the same recessive genetic disease, because we are all carriers of something. Um, If it's a recessive condition, we may not be aware of it. Um, And so the industry has really moved in the direction of doing this expanded carrier screening and offering more information on the donors, which I, I think is fantastic to take advantage of that technology. Whose responsibility is it to um, to move to improve uh, accuracy in this uh, industry? I think each player is really uh, needs to step up the responsibility, and on our end, for each um, each vial that we distribute, we do send a paper copy of a pregnancy or family report. But then, along with that, we also have built several years ago built an online uh, portal to report families and births. Fairfax um, adopted the policy that internally we are going to stop distributing when we have 25 families reported to us in the United States, and internationally, it's a, we have a range of 10 to 15 families, and, and that is dependent on the regist- uh, sorry regulations of the country that we're talking about. Um, for example, the UK has a limit of 10, 10 families per donor. So, you know, we, we really rely on that reporting. So the individuals using the sperm have a role in that as well. My understanding of the, the donor sibling registry isn't that it's about registering the births. It's about, regis- it's about registering for contact with either half-siblings or other individuals who use the donor. We need people to report births and families directly to us because otherwise how can we then limit our distribution? Um, you know, if, if people want to make connections in the future, that's, that's great, and it's, it's good that there are so many ways for them to do that. But in the end, I, I am going to always advocate that, that people report directly to the cryobank they worked with, whether it be to report that they had a, a live birth and their child is good and healthy, or to report that there may be an issue. We need that information directly. Like any field, like, like anything in healthcare, like any, really any field, Sperm banking has evolved, as as have other, you know, other fields. But the people that have, if we're talking about children who are 18 to 20 years old, people who are adults of age requesting contact with, you know, ID donors, that you're talking about people who were conceived using sperm that was produced 20, you know, 20 plus years ago in a system that's very different from what is happening now. 
in the 80s and 90s, it was a very different world. The regulations didn't exist through FDA. ASRM did have some guidelines, the, the, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, they did have some guidelines for, di- for distribution. But, you know, it, it, I don't know if you have this anywhere um, or have read this, but it's like 25 births per population of 800,000 yeah. in a geographic region. Yeah. So banks were adhering to that at the time. The testing that was happening at the time was based on the testing that was available at the time. You know, at, back in the 80s, there, there weren't ID donors. You know, in the 70s, people were using, you know, doctors were pulling medical students in and saying, I have a couple that needs donor sperm, let me use you. You know, so it's a very different world. It used to be about secrecy and and um, there was very little regulation. And, and then you sort of move forward in time and in 2005, the FDA put into place their their regulations on gamete donation and insist, you know, put into place the infectious disease testing. In 2008, we adopted our internal policy of 25 families. So the, the larger family groups that we're seeing are historically are from donors that donated prior to these changes. And what's happening now is dramatically different than what was happening in, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So I do see, based on that, I do recognize that the people who are of age and can speak about their experience are coming from that place. That's their experience. But I do hope that people looking at this field can see the evolution and can see that with time, policies have changed. Donor numbers can know their donors now. There are ID donor programs. Um, you know, even, even the non-ID donors understand that it's really, truly not anonymous. Right, and that's uh, that was another point. Uh, so why have the pretense of it being anonymous if you can just trace with DNA? Right, so this is, we have a non-ID and an ID program, and what that means is that the donors working with us who want to be a part of the ID program are basically saying that when kids are 18 or older, we can release their contact information. People who choose the non-ID program are saying, I'm not really open to connecting with these people in the future. You and I now know, and again, this is, this is part of the sort of evolution of the field, 25 years ago there were not Ancestry.com or 23andMe test kits. We couldn't, you couldn't do that. No. Um, now it is a part of the reality. Every prospective donor that comes in and meets with my staff we sit down, we have an interview with them, we discuss all of these things with them. We talk to them about the genetic testing. We talk about the fact that even if you yourself don't do uh, you know, one of these genetic tests, if one of your blood relatives does it and choose, checks the box that they want contacts with other people who share their genetics, you have a really high percentage of being identified. So it is discussed. That being said, they these, you know, the prospective donors are going in with eyes open, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be forced into some kind of a contact. If they opt to communicate with individuals with whom they're genetically related, that's great. If it's mutual consented contact, that's fantastic. 